Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles. I'll be reading Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Acts 5, 12 through 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. Let him in. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible inerrant word. Father, help me as a pastor, as a teacher, teach. Help us have eyes to see what happened 2,000 years ago. And help us see implications for us today as your people, as your church, through your wonderful Son, who came to die for us and to rise victorious over death. Give us ears to hear and hearts to love what we see through your Son, Jesus, by the Spirit. Amen. Over my 37 years as a Christian, I have heard many, many people say that if we are not experiencing the miraculous on a regular basis, then we're doing something wrong as Christians, as churches. After all, right here in the Acts of the Apostles, it shows us what the ongoing life of the church is supposed to be like. Like in our passage, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That is, Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the neighboring towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So, there it is. That's true Christianity. How's your church doing? Is God with you in power? And the miraculous, stunning, unexplainable healings? 
If not, then you better get with it. And so there have been, and there are today, in front of some churches on their marquee, every Sunday night, 6 p.m., healing and miracle service. Notice that for some reason it's not on Sunday morning. There is a longing within the human, much less Christians, for the otherworldly. There's a longing to see signs and wonders. That's why even in our culture, the narratives constantly being written are reaching to some other dimension constantly, some otherworldly thing beyond what we know naturally. We all know this. It's there. Now, here's the big question as we come down to this portion of Scripture in the book of Acts. Is what Luke is telling us is it meant to be descriptive? Or is it also meant to be prescriptive? In other words, is he just describing historically what actually happened? Or is he also prescribing what ought to be and should be happening all the time in churches throughout the centuries. Is it descriptive or also prescriptive? Let me give you an, ex an example about why I mean what I mean. In chapter 1 of Acts, Luke told us that the apostles and others were on the Mount of Olives and they saw Jesus after 40 days of appearances ascend to heaven. Is it descriptive or is it also prescriptive? Are, are we meant to try, if we're real Christians, to go seek to see if I can see Jesus ascend to heaven on the Mount of Olives? Well, okay, obviously that's descriptive. So the question, is what we're reading here descriptive or is it also prescriptive. Here's my conclusion. It's mainly descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, what we read here is not normative for the church throughout the ages. Not only that, I can't prove this, but I don't think what we see happening here in this text was normative for the church in Jerusalem 22 years later. Can't prove it. I don't think after the apostles plant churches and leave, like in the church of Corinth, that this is the daily occurrence with the Christians broken up through all the cities in their home churches, etc., on a daily basis in the way that we see happening here. I do not mean to say that God cannot and does not miraculously heal, which there's no explanation for why that paralyzed person now walked. I'm not saying that. What I mean to say is this, that the powerful, consistent, regular signs and wonders that were being done in this passage and throughout the book of Acts 
or on the mission field later with the apostles, that that was unprecedented in church history and is not therefore prescriptive in that sense. In other words, so first, the great apostle, the sent one, the Messiah, the Savior, the son of David, comes, and he comes with a stamp of approval from God. He's the one. And that stamp of approval is the unprecedented power of signs and wonders and miracles in his earthly ministry. And he chooses 12 to begin with as his special personal sent ones after he dies and rises from the dead and teaches for a month and a half and then ascends and with them whom he is using as the foundational leaders of the founding of his church, they are commissioned with extraordinary manifestations of signs and wonders by the Holy Spirit as the confirming of their testimony that God raised Jesus from the dead. So we see, for instance, you just read through the Gospels and the signs and wonders are just everywhere in Jesus' ministry. And he goes over here and everybody is healed. And then Peter preaches this way. Remember his first sermon? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. In other words, God stood in the witness box, testified. That's right. He's the one. What was his testimony? He was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Later, Peter preaches again in Cornelius' house and he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. And then he sends his hand-picked apostles. Every one of them an eyewitness of his resurrection from the dead. And we read this about them in the book of Acts. Back in chapter 2, verse 43, Luke says, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And now we read in our text, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Okay. Now, there is 
I want to be as honest as I can with the Bible. Because there's a big but now. And that's this. Luke recognizes that God raised up other leaders who were not apostles. But they were powerful preachers who also, he testifies, Luke testifies, that they did signs and wonders. Like Stephen, like Philip, the evangelist. For instance, in Acts 6-8, we read this from Luke's pen. In Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And Luke, in the same historical narrative, says, and he seems to think it's important to say it this way, signs and wonders were regularly being done by the hands of the apostles. Down the road, there's Stephen. And then again, there's Philip. And who knows? Throughout the centuries, missionaries in the jungle to some tribe, and voodoo doctors. Can God do signs and wonders? I see no reason why He can't. But there's a distinction between his hand-picked apostles and the regularity of the confirming of their witness that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay. Let me just put that over here right now. Let's, let's go to, to the passage. Okay. But first, let's remember the context now, where we have been and what Luke is doing. Okay, He is painting a picture. He's, he's given a summary of the state of the church during the first year or two here in Jerusalem. And he has let us know this church is on fire for Jesus. They are meeting regularly in Solomon's portico, the east wing of the temple. It can hold thousands of people. And they're meeting in homes and houses all over Jerusalem. They're eating together. They're praying together. They're committing themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. He's, this is what he's letting us see. And then he shows us there's this, this miracle of the man in his 40s who had never walked since birth. And now he's leaping and jumping and praising God at the temple gate. And he goes into the temple and it draws a massive crowd of fellow Jews. Peter preaches. And then 2,000 more souls come to Jesus and are saved. But then we see, before that's over, the temple police come and Peter and John are arrested. They are put in jail. The next day they stand before the Jewish high court and don't preach in His name anymore. And Peter says, whether we should obey you or God, you be the judge. And then they warned them with a threat of punishment, do not teach about Jesus anymore. And they released them. 
And of course, these apostles refused to obey the court. But instead, they met with a bunch of fellow believers and had a big prayer meeting and they prayed, and we saw this, God, give us by the Holy Spirit boldness to speak and perform signs and wonders. And then Luke shows us the life-changing reality of the power of the Holy Spirit going on in that church community. As many with means, I got an extra property, I got a property, will go and sell their property, get all that money, and give all the money into the community pot of the church in order that no one with true needs would have needs, but they would be being met. And then in the midst of it, we saw last week, Luke says, not all who are in the church were of the Spirit. And we saw this dramatic, fearful judgment of God upon Ananias and Sapphira for their fakery. God struck them dead publicly. And we read in verse 11 of chapter 5, great fear came upon the whole church and upon the non-church. All who heard of these things. And so what Luke has brought us up to at this point now is this. For the time being, that put a stop to outsiders of the church who didn't really get it. It put a stop to them looking at the church and thinking to themselves, hey, that looks like a pretty cool happening group to be a part of. Not anymore. That's a dangerous group to join if you're faking it. But if you're real, Luke lets us know, if you're real and you come to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, then you're one of those persons in chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. But he lets us know, if you're fake and you're putting on a mask of hypocrisy, very conscious, lying to the Holy Spirit, trying to look good, you know, move yourself up the ladder in the local church here in Jerusalem or something like that, look at me. Well, this is what he says about it. Immediately, Sapphira fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And what that produced at this time was none of those outside the church dared now to just flippantly join up with these Jesus sect Jews. And that's what Luke clearly says in our passage. 
chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest, outsiders to the church, none of the rest dared join them. But the people as a whole held them in high esteem. In other words, Ananias and Sapphira and that event of God's judgment sobered up the believers and it struck fear in the hearts of all those who were not part of the church. No hypocrites, in other words, dared join the church for fear of being struck <coughs> dead. But Luke lets us know God was still miraculously changing hearts, the hearts of sinners, and bringing them into the church. Verses 13 and 14 together. together. None of the rest dare join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers, that means non-believers, turned into believers. Believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes. Now he stopped counting. He was counting before. 3,000, 2,000. Now he stops. Multitudes of both men and women. All right. Now, before we go back to signs and wonders, what I want to do, I want, I want to just, I want to pause on this and try to be as honest as we can with what we have read in this text, the way Luke has unfolded what's happening here. I say that because it's kind of hard for us to grasp because it is so different than anything we know today. That is this. What I mean is this. What is so different is this. A church that unbelievers would not dare attend. Now again, what we're reading here, it is a description of what happened. I think it's mainly a description. I'm just going to say it this way. It's not necessarily a prescription. But one thing is for sure. These Christians that Luke is talking about did not attend the same classes I had to attend as an undergraduate in Bible college and then in seminary on the topic of church growth. They were not in those classes. This seems to be the opposite of what is taught today. Today, we're supposed to do all we can to make the local church and her public services as user-friendly as possible to outsiders, to the unchurched. The modern, seeker-sensitive approach to church says that we should not be clear and upfront about the whole gospel 
at the beginning. We should not be upfront about God in His holiness and our sinfulness and about the fear of God that is a necessity in order to be saved and of the judgment that is to come. We ought not scare away outsiders. Instead, we should make the church community and its public services a safe space where non-Christians can come and feel good about themselves and about the message. Yes, you tell them about Jesus. He loves you. That's it. That, there, there you go. As long as you got that, you got the gospel, they say. You having a problem with your marriage? Jesus is the answer. Yeah, I really do. It's really hard. Oh, really? Cool. You got problems raising your children? Jesus loves you. He's the answer. The goal, they say, is that you win them first. And they get to like us, the church people. They enjoy the families and the family barbecues and the functions. Maybe our goal is later, down the road, in a class maybe somewhere, then we'll slip in the gospel. That is a very different view and strategy than the early church had. They thought the fear of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit produced fear of God in sinners like us was foundational to being saved. If you just open up the book of Acts and read every sermon we've been through, two of them so far, and other speeches like before the Sanhedrin. Just read the sermons of their preaching the gospel, much less the rest of the, the New Testament, and you'll see that there was no waiting around in eight-inch deep water, trying to figure out how to deceive non-Christians into liking the church first, while ignoring who God is, ignoring the truth and the reality of their sin and their guilt and of a judgment to come. It's just not there. They believed, as Paul wrote in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And they trusted that into God's hands. Back in the year A.D. 33, A.D. 34, God in His church was not to be trifled with. And Ananias and Sapphira were exhibit A. God's holiness, God's hatred for unrepentant hypocrisy toward those who put mask on of Christianity, that holiness of God in that early church was very thick. 
in the air. None of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women were called as churches and as Christians to preach. Be clear with the gospel. He's given it to us. We don't have to change it. We are to plant the seed. God makes it grow or not. We are called to be faithful to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and allow God to work. That's one main lesson to be drawn from our passage this morning. Okay, now what I want to do, I want to go back and I I want to read verses 20, 20, I want to read verses 12 through 16 again. But what I want to do first to get the flow of what Luke is doing is to remember again how they had just prayed to God and what they prayed. Back in chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. They get out from, of jail They're released by the Jewish high court. Bunch of the Christians gather together with the apostles and they pray this way. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your servant, Jesus. So they prayed, God, heal physical bodies. Do signs and wonders. And God answered the prayer, okay. And that's what we read. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. God did. Remember how Peter began this book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8? He said 
to his apostles. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And so you notice in our text, it's not all church members performing signs and wonders. It's by the hands of the apostles. And the purpose of God granting these miracles through the apostles, again, was to confirm His approval upon them as His personal sent ones, as eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Why? As we read elsewhere in the New Testament, the church is being founded. And it's being founded upon these apostles, the leaders, who at its founding, unlike the vast majority of us Christians ever since, and many to whom are converted under them, never touched Jesus post-death and ate food with Him and talked with Him and were taught by Him. They are foundational eyewitnesses. And God's stamp of approval of that craziness that they preached was came with miracles, signs, and wonders on a regular basis. So that's why when you turn to your New Testament, and decades later, Jewish Christians, okay, they were experiencing this kind of thing. The writer, in his sermon that he writes to them, he says this 30 to 40 years later. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, book of Hebrews. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, in the context, it's the salvation that is clearly preached through Jesus Christ. He says this, it, what? This gospel, this salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord, by Jesus Himself in His earthly ministry. And then it was attested to us. How? By those who heard Him, were with Jesus, walked with Jesus, particularly the apostles. And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also, do you remember, bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Do you remember? And you know the book of Hebrews. Most of us don't, we? They're slacking. They're slacking. Some are turning. No! Cling to the gospel. Remember how it was founded 
Remember the healings and the miracles that you had no explanation for. These guys testifying that Jesus is the Christ and God raised him from the dead and we have touched him and known him and been taught what him is absolutely true. He says, remember, don't forget. They had the signs of true apostles. And so the Apostle Paul, when he has to deal with all kinds of manipulative, self-exalting preachers roaming about his churches on the mission field, like in Corinth, he calls them false apostles. Paul makes this comment to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. He means by him, himself as a true apostle. And then he says, what I mean is this. With, they were performed with utmost patience, that is this, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Stamp of approval. I am a personal sent one from the resurrected Lord Jesus. Now, having said that, I want to deal with one other issue. And these are things I struggle with. I deal with the text this week. Verses 14 and 15, let's read it again. Notice it says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So my question is, and the way Luke puts this in, in the book of Acts, okay, signs, wonders, healings, miracles, did they help people make the decision to convert to Christ? Because if that's a real key, wow, we really need to have them. In other words, what I mean, on the day of Pentecost, they flow out of the upper room and there is this bizarre manifestation of the Holy Spirit as these 120 persons are, are, are blabbing away in unknown tongues, unknown to them, but then known to them. And it drew a crowd. And 3,000 souls were saved. Then Luke shows us there's the healing of the man at the gate, beautiful, and they go into the temple and it draws a massive crowd. And another 2,000 souls are saved. And then later, Luke will say this, chapter 9, verses 32 to 35. Now as Peter went here and there, now he's away from Jerusalem up in Judea and all that, here and there among them all. He came down also to the saints, the Christians who lived at Lydda. There he found a man 
named Aeneas, who was bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Okay, now this is the next sentence is what's stunning. Luke says, And all the residents of Lydda and the neighboring town of Sharon or Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So, it seems as if Luke wants us to see that the working of miracles and healings were connected to people coming to Christ. So what are we to make of it? Well, two things. One is, clearly in the book of Acts, there is a correlation between signs and wonders and miracles, healings, and people getting saved. Okay, but the question is, are the signs and the wonders and the healings the cause of people getting saved? Correlation and cause are not synonymous. And I think the answer to that question is simple. The miracles, the healings, and what we see in the book of Acts, they are the cause of drawing crowds to pay attention to and to hear the gospel preached. But they are not the reason. They are not the immediate cause of persons' conversions. Why? Okay, I'm not going to... I do this a lot as we work our way through the Bible. Understanding the gospel is presented in the New Testament. But just in summary form, why do I say that so easily? Because we know so crystal clearly in the New Testament that unless a person is born by the Spirit, they cannot be saved. They will not believe. That's the immediate cause. The act of new birth is the immediate cause of any of us sinners coming to saving faith in Jesus. As Jesus himself said, no one can come to me unless he sees a miracle. That's not what he said. Not only that, the people he's talking to were with him the day before on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they sat down and ate lunch as Jesus fed 5,000 with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. They saw the miracle, and that's why they followed him. And Jesus says, you're only here because you're hungry. And so he makes it clear, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me Acts draws him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I go throughout the Roman Empire to Jews and non-Jews, 
and I preach the gospel, Christ crucified and raised from the dead, and nobody believes it. And nor can they. Well, except then he goes on and says, but those who are called to them, Christ is the power of God and, and the wisdom of God. Jesus looks at Nicodemus, and remember what Nicodemus, he came. We, we see the miracles you do, the healings you do. We're convinced. And, you know, Nicodemus is an educated dude. And he says, no one can do the things that you do publicly unless God is with him. And Jesus says, unless a person is born again by the Holy Spirit, he cannot see nor can he enter the kingdom. Of God And all of that act of God in the heart happens while the church, us, believers, preach the gospel. That's how it happens. That's why the answer is the miracles didn't cause people to believe in Jesus. They got their attention, they heard the gospel, and God acted. All right, one more little strange thing that bugged me this week, okay? That's what I'm doing today. It's a weird sermon, right? I mean, it's three sermons in one. And that is, what we read in Acts, that praying God, stretch out your hands, do miracles, etc. And then you read Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, and he says this, for Jews, they demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we don't give them to them. We preach Christ crucified. And therefore, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. Okay. Seemingly, Paul's downplaying signs and wonders. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, and he said it a few other places too, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Okay, here's Jesus in his ministry. What's Funny, right? He's been doing the signs of the Son of David in a public, in a public way for a while, all over the place. And then some Pharisees come, give us a sign. And he says, no, I'm not going to give you a sign. The only sign you're going to get, you're going to hear some of my buddies preaching that I was raised from the dead, and that's your sign. Do with it what? You will. So if Paul says, no, we preach Christ killed. We don't give signs and wonders. And Jesus said, an evil and adulterous people seek after signs. Why did the apostles in the early church pray that God would stretch out his hand to do signs and wonders? And then God did it. This is what I think. Seeking miracles. 
signs, wonders, which God has done and can do. It is, as Jesus said, evil. When that demand, give us a sign. He's been healing people all over the place. Give us more signs. I want to see more. When that comes from an already resisting heart to the truth of who Jesus is, it's evil. It was true concerning, in that context, the Pharisees to whom Jesus was speaking. And it was true in Paul's missionary journey in all the synagogues and every town that he went to concerning many hard-hearted Jews that Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians 1. It is wrong to seek signs when it is used as an excuse to cover up one's unwillingness to believe. That's it. When these apostles in the early church pray, God, do signs and wonders, they're not covering up anything. They believe. They have been filled with the Spirit it's flowing out of this God. Exalt your name. You could do it. Do it. As we go and preach. Very different. Give us a sign. Sit down and let me teach you for the next week, Paul would say. No, no, no. I want a sign. You have no ears to hear. That's how Jesus would speak. And they don't. And none of us were born with ears to hear. And if we hear, oh, it's a sign. It is the most important, miraculous sign you could ever, ever want. I believe. How did that happen? Don't be deceived. It's not because you were smart. And it's not because you were wise. It's because you were a hell-bound sinner whom God loved and chose from the foundation of the world. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So these apostles in the early church pray because they love the glory of God. They believe in His Son and therefore they're praying, seeking signs or wanting signs is not at all evil because it comes from a heart that wants God's name through the preaching of Jesus Christ vindicated. Now, and the apostles... I tried to argue, were unique. They had a unique and a special, time-bound, until they're dead, miraculous ministry that was there for the confirming of their eyewitness testimony. So therefore, we 
ought not expect such signs and wonders like they had. But there is no reason in the world we ought not expect and pray for the miracle of new birth. God, do revival. Pour out your spirit. And pray that God would act, that he would heal bodies. He would use signs, wonders, to draw people to pay attention to the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, and that God, by his grace, may save many. Let's pray. So, Father, together, even right now, many of us have loved ones, kids, family, parents, cousins, friends, workmates in mind. We ask, Holy Father, cause that one and that one and that one to be born again, to see do miracles, bother their minds that cause their attention to go to things eternal and bring through whichever ways you will do that. One-on-one, -on -one, church services, living rooms, loved ones, opening the Bible just because they don't know why, but they want to. Do it, Holy Father. To the glory of your name, to the joy of more angels in heaven at the conversion of another soul. Amen.